Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we need your word for life. We need your word for contentment, for peace. We know your word is truth, and so we worship you by sitting under its preaching. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we saw last week that verse 18 repeats verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now here our first verse for our text this morning is verse 18. So then it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men. And then it completes the second half of this parallel. It gives us the type to the antitype. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And so in, uh, in the church, we've always referred to Jesus Christ, because of this, as the second Adam. That Adam, in Adam, we all die, and in Christ, we are made alive. We are given eternal life, which is how it ends by saying, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right? Now, I have mentioned a number of times in preaching this that the Apostle Paul is, is very, very repetitious. And he is hitting this parallel, comparing and contrasting, hitting the parallel, one, 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 one. Remember, I talked about the seven ones in the text last week. And it's just this, this theme that's being repeated over and over and over again. And this theme is the theme of what? Well, it's the theme of federal headship. The Apostle Paul is, in every way he possibly can, showing you that God has set up the world in a way that causes Adam to be our federal head, and for those given the gift of faith, that Jesus is our federal head. And, you know, we listen to that and we think of the Federalist Papers and we think of the Federalist Society and it's kind of a little bit uh, exotic. Yeah, federal, 
federal headship, you know. But federal headship is gnarly because it has uh, elbows that are pointy, and they, they hit us, you know, like on the basketball court, posting up. Federal headship is actually an obnoxious doctrine. And the church typically takes great joy in every part of the doctrine that has no sharp elbows. And so we love Jesus, and we think that's sufficient. And the Romans love Jesus, and why wasn't Paul satisfied with them saying, I love Jesus? You know, but he kept writing them this and writing them that. And, and in the church today, we just don't think we need any of the particularities and the sharp elbows of the Apostle Paul. Well, the Romans didn't either. And that's the reason that the Apostle Paul was so repetitious. Because they didn't think they needed it. Now, why is the Apostle Paul so repetitious on the doctrine of federal headship? That Adam is our federal head, and that for those who have faith, Jesus is our federal head. Why was that? He constantly going on and on and on about this. Well, we'll see that today as we go through this passage of the Word of God, which is eternally true. First of all, let's ask, in verse 18, it says, through one transgression, we all know that that's eating the apple, one transgression, there resulted condemnation. And then it says, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So part of the parallel is one transgression, one act of righteousness. Now, what is the one act of righteousness? Now, what we would like to say is, well, the one act of righteousness is Jesus dying. But is that the only act of righteousness that is our justification? Well, in in one sense you could say, yeah, but really it's not. What good would it have done for Christ to die if Christ had been a sinner? Christ could never have justified us through his death and resurrection if he had sinned. Because it had to be the spotless Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You can't take a lamb to God and sacrifice it that has a gammy leg. Okay? You couldn't take your lousy lamb and give it as an offering to God. It had to be a lamb without blemish. And that pointed to the antitype, which is what? Well, it's Jesus Christ. He's spotless. Jesus Christ didn't come to the cross with sin. He came perfect. He came having fulfilled every obedience of his Father. And so when the Apostle Paul points to that one act of righteousness, he's not limiting it to simply the moment at which he gave up the ghost. Into thy hand I commend my spirit. He's referring to the entire life of Jesus Christ. From the moment of conception to the moment of death, Jesus was perfect. He was one act of righteousness. And that act of righteousness, all of it matters. Because with only one sin, with only one failure on his part to do what God commanded to do, because if you know what is right and you do it not, it is sin. You know, we always try to cut ourselves slack and and look at the sins that are sort of, you know, nasty, 
which often are the sins where we do something we shouldn't do as worse than the sins where we don't do something we should do. You know, we have this hierarchy of sins, right? If Jesus had simply uh, disobeyed one of the least of the laws, like, for instance, the rabbis would say, you know, it's the one about the bird and the nest and, you know, the, the things having to do with animals, right? If he had done one smallest, tiniest, violation of the law, he would have been in, it would have immediately rendered him incapable of justifying anyone. But Jesus, from the moment of conception to the moment of death, never failed to do what he was supposed to do, what he was commanded to do by his Father, and he never did what he was commanded not to do. You know, there's wonderful scenes in the wilderness where he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. He just keeps quoting Scripture. And he did not sin. He was sinless. Okay? And then in verse 19 we read, For as through the one's man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And once again, this obedience is not limited simply to him going to the death on the cross. In John 4.34, we read about the obedience of Jesus, where Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus obeyed his father. Jesus never stopped obeying his Father. Somewhere in the last couple of days, someone, I don't know who it was, said to me, that man's sons commend him. Well, who was that man? Well, I was out cleaning up Mike's... uh, shell a few weeks ago and there was a bunch of crud in the bottom of the elevator shaft and it was just gross and so that man that somebody was talking to me one of his sons was there beside me and so I said to his son would you jump down in there and I he got a broom and he went down and he swept all kind of dust in the air And there was no hesitation as he did his work. Whatever I asked him to do, he did it. Whatever I asked him to do, he did it. And what I was doing was I was seeing his obedience of his father. And I was so impressed by him, I looked at him and I said, you are a good worker, and I am so proud of your father. Right? Okay, come on, you all know who it is. There's only one man in this church that has sons that live to do what their father tells them to do. No, Brandon, I'm sorry, it's not you. Of course it's... And it was... Where's, he's gone, right? Yeah, he's gone. You tell him I said this. And, you know, you think, well, you're flattering... No, actually not. 
What I'm doing is I'm saying to you that all of us are called to live what we see Scripture showing us. The one act of obedience of our Lord was obedience of a particular person. And who was the person? It was his father. And he obeyed him. And so much of the doctrine that's contained in these few verses is so helpful to us as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and grandparents. If Jesus obeyed his father, what higher desire do we have for our sons than that they obey their father? And who is their father? And immediately you're an evangelical, so you say, it's God. And I say, no. It's not God. And you say, sacrilege. And I say, no, God has given you the dignity of wearing his name. And you are their father. And you say, well, it says, call no man father. I say, yeah, it also says our father who art in heaven. And you say, yeah, that, see, that's right. The apostle Paul says, I'm a father and he's my son about Timothy. I became a father to them. Listen. Your fatherhood, your husbandry, your leadership in your home either tells the truth about federal headship or it doesn't. You say, well, what does this have to do about federal headship? Well, look here, verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam. Do you want to raise your sons to be Adam? Huh? You want your sons to be Adam? And you say, no, I don't. The many were made sinners. (laughs) Oh, man. You have an oldest son who's Adam, and guess what happens to the rest of the children? Even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. You see, God has ordained that all of creation testifies to eternity. There's not one part of creation that does not give witness to God's household rules, his household pictures, his household truths, all of life is lived out loud to the glory of God or to the rebellion of God. Okay? Jesus said to them, my food. How important was food this week? Huh? Was it important? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do his work. (laughs) But that's not what it says. There's a little word there that has to do with whether you put your tools away when you finish your job. Because your job isn't finished, it isn't accomplished (laughs) until you put the tools away. Do you see that word accomplish? It is finished, was his cry. He didn't just do his father's work. He finished it. Okay? You all see this. Now, the next verse is here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, if you don't think that's a scandalous, bonkers statement, you're asleep. And some of you are, actually. Okay, now you're all awake. (laughs) What on earth is going on here that God sent the law 
so that transgressions would increase. If you don't think that's weird, there's something wrong with you. It's weird. Why would God want transgressions to increase? The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Well, commentaries are expensive books, very expensive books, where guys uh, talk about all the various interpretations that you could have of books, chapters, verses, phrases, and words, all right? And so, predictably, uh, in, in the commentaries, there's a lot of discussion about what this means about the transgression, that the transgression would increase. Let me give you four possibilities that Doug Moo up at Wheaton College gives, all right? He says it could mean that um, when the law was given, it caused us to desire to break it. Now, this is the Augustine view, right? where the minute the tree has forbidden fruit, you want to go to your neighbor's yard and you want to steal the fruit. And you don't even care if you eat it, just smash it on the ground, but it's your neighbor's fruit, so you want it. And the law that says you shall not steal causes you to want the fruit. Okay, so maybe the reason the transgression increases is the minute you're told not to do something, you want to do it, and the minute you're told to do something, you want not to do it. Now, I saw a perfect illustration of this at Thanksgiving, where... A little child who is knee-high to a grasshopper, whose forearm is smaller than her mother's thumb, I mean, not really, but almost, and who had behind her her father within a couple of feet behind her. And her father is a force to be contended with. And in front of her was her mother. And her mother was standing up, and her mother said to her, come here. And the minute she said that, I saw a look come across her face. And that look said, because you just told me to come, I am now firmly committed to not come. And so just sort of sat back on her haunches and kind of looked at her mother. And there was another reason to obey, which was that her grandfather, who is not as much of a force to be contended with as her father, but nevertheless is not to be dismissed, was sitting just a couple of feet there. So she had her mother in front of her, her dad behind her, her grandpa over there. And then her mother squatted down and said, come here. And that face just got more stubborn. Now at that point, what grandparents think, and you probably wonder what we're thinking at points like that. So I'll tell you because you've just gotten through Thanksgiving. What grandparents are thinking is, could you please teach your children to be obedient at home? Because I don't want discipline in my house. (laughs) But they had failed at home. And so there had to be discipline in my house. And so her mother swooshed off with that that little child. Now, that's the first possibility, so that sin may increase. The minute says, come here, is committed to not coming here. And honestly, if it had not said come here and it simply stood there, I guarantee you would have come to her. In other words, it was the very command that I saw strengthen resistance. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, now, that's the first one. Here's the second one. The law causes us to strive to obey it, and in that striving, we take comfort and security and self-righteousness. So sin increases because we try to obey the law, and then we have our own righteousness. Well, I tried, you know, I, 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 I have been obedient here and here and here, and when we begin to keep track of which parts of the law we keep, which parts we don't, we minimize the importance of the laws that we don't keep, we maximize the importance of the laws that we do keep, so we begin to keep track, and we become moralists, we become legalists, we, we become self-righteous, okay? That's how sin increases, because it makes it self-righteous. Or third, the law, by it being given, it helps us to understand what sin is. And so we have more subjective perception of what the law is and how we fail it. And so when it says that the law, that trespasses increase, that sins increase, what it's saying is that we understand that our own depravity. Okay? Or fourth, uh, we have a general sense of our sin, but when the specifics are given to us, our understanding of our sin grows exponentially because we are now, instead of just sort of committing infractions, we're now disobeying specific commands. And so the specificity of the command causes our sins to increase because if ignorance of the law is no excuse, when the law is given and you're no longer ignorant, you really have no excuse. Do you see that? Now, the, the point of writing a commentary is to make people see all the problems there are in the text and then solve them for them. Because then people are dependent on the commentary in order to read their Bible. And that means lots of sales. That's kind of a cynical view of it, but I'm always against people having a study Bible. Have I ever told you this? And the reason is that you tend to displace what God has actually inspired by what men say about what God has inspired. And that's dangerous. Now, does that mean that we don't listen to people teaching us, to people preaching? No. But there's a difference between preaching and writing a commentary. Let me tell you. Even in Calvin, when you read his commentaries and when you read his sermons on the same text, unbelievable difference. Okay? Listen, the way we read and the way we speak is never the way commenters make it look like. They want us to feel like we have to make a decision between those four. There's no reason that you have to make a decision before those four. I'm convinced that every one of the four is true and that there's probably about ten more that are true. The fact is the law was given that sin would increase. And you wouldn't believe how many ways the law makes sin increase. It makes stubborn, you know. It makes you see your own sin. It makes you self-righteous that you kept that law. And it also makes you aware of the, uh, the hopelessness of your condition because you have been specifically told, uh, thou shalt not steal. And now you realize that you disobeyed. You remember what the Apostle Paul says, that if the law had not told him that he was not to covet, 
that he wouldn't have known it was wrong, right? And so the, the law added to the Apostle Paul's weight of sin. And, and a lot of people would like to say it's just the ceremonial law. It's not just the ceremonial law. It's the moral law, okay? Now, regardless of which position you take on the statement, the statement that's made is this, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Let me ask you a question. Um, What is the application of this statement of Scripture to your life and to your home and to your children? If God gave us the law so that sin would increase, why is it that we bend all over backwards trying to keep there from being laws in our home? Now, I could pick on a lot of things, but let me pick on one of my pet peeves. If your home is filled with these little things that attach to the cabinet doors that keep children from opening them, and all your outlets have those safety prong plastic things to keep your children from putting their fingers in them, it's like, here's an idea. Teach your children not to open cabinet doors. Here's an idea. Tell your children that they may not put their finger in the plug and die. Because someday they're going to get into a house where there's actually outlets where they can die. It's so much easier to teach them. No. (laughs) Now, okay, you want to argue with me and say it's actually very, very kind of the child to have the little latch things that, you know, you have to put your finger on and open the door so the kids can't get at the, uh, what is it, the, uh, the toilet bowl cleaner. Okay? But there's only one cabinet in your house that's toilet bowl cleaner or two, you know. Listen, our predisposition is always to try to limit the commands that we make in the home. Our predisposition is that we should have as few rules as possible in our homes. It's true. We feel guilty when we make rules that are for our convenience or our comfort as a mother and as a father. So then my question is, what is wrong with God? Why didn't God have the same operating rule? You know, I'm afraid that Adam might be tempted to eat the fruit when I say no. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make that tree stink. So he won't even want to go near it. And that'll be so helpful. And then after the fall, he decided he wouldn't give the Ten Commandments because probably if he gave the Ten Commandments, the Israelites would be waiting so long that down at the bottom of the mountain, they would be having some sort of party and would have made an idol. Remember how I said the doctrine of federal headship has sharp elbows, and it really is disruptive to our lives. And listen... You look at this issue of God giving the law so that sin might increase, and then you look at how you treat laws in your home. And I guarantee you our homes are apologetic about rules. But why? Well, the reason is 
we don't want our children to be faced with any more of their sinfulness than they absolutely have to be faced with. Why? Well, because we don't have any faith in sin. And you say, faith in sin? I say, yeah. And you say, well, what on earth do you mean by that? And I say, well, the law was given so that sins might increase. Do you have faith for sin increasing? That's what I mean by faith in sin. And you say, well, yeah, but it says do not sin. Be, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. I say, okay, so how are you going to be holy unless you are inundated with sin? What is the purpose of the law? Well, it's a schoolmaster that drives us to despair and to Jesus. And so what? We teach our children that the fewer rules possible, the, 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 the better the peace of the home. You know, we don't want them to come under conviction of their failure to obey their father and mother. And so we make them obey their father and mother as few places as possible. And that's the abiding principle of your home. Don't have any more rules than absolutely necessary so you don't have to face your rebellion and certainly so that I don't have to discipline you. I mean, that's what it's always about, right? And so if there are no commands, the wonderful thing at home is that there are no sins. And there are also no prohibitions and no transgressions. And if there's no transgressions, there's no punishment. And then, wonderful thing, there's no authority. Because there are no commands, there are no sins, no transgressions, and no punishments. And, of course, you all know that we do everything we possibly can to minimize our authority. You know? And then happens the thing that I keep warning you about, and it is this. Let the civil magistrate clean the filth up out there in the public square away from the home. And then I get to have that peaceful, easy feeling. Listen, you say that you love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, what you love is his righteous obedience that purchased eternal life for you. And that means that you must love the law because the law drove you to him. You didn't come to him of your own volition. You came because the law was given and your sins were increased to a point where you could not bear it. That's the only reason you went to Jesus Christ. And it's the only reason why grace is precious to you. And so having a principle in your home that you minimize infractions you, by minimizing rules, and that by minimizing commandments and rules and infractions, you minimize punishment, and by minimizing punishment, you minimize authority. It just lies about God. How do you expect your children to come into the church 
and be told their sin when at home you've tried to minimize infractions. Of course the church is going to be obnoxious to your children because you're asking the the church to do all the heavy lifting of God's fatherhood. How much hope is there of having a child who's been raised in a Christian home whose, whose father has constantly told him that I'm just like you. I'm, I'm like a friend. I'm a dude. Dude. You dude, me dude. You know? And then he comes into the church and what? Pastor Bailey's going, I'm just a friend. Like you dude, me dude. Us dudes. It ain't going to work. You know? How about Pastor Max, you know? What I really want is for my children to love Pastor Max. And so what I'm going to do is, like, I'm going to cultivate that peaceful, easy feeling in my home. Because then they'll have Max as a comfy chair. And then Max fails to produce. He's not a comfy chair. He's actually a lot of sharp elbows. Right? Are you all with me? And how about the rest of the elders? Or how about, forget your children, how about your wife? You know, you don't do any heavy lifting at home. You have no rules. You have no authority, no command, no nothing, because you're just a nice guy. Mutual submission, you know, and tie-breaking authority, and forget the federal headship in the marriage. Forget that stupid stuff. You know? And so you come into the church, and, and the pastor's telling you that you should maximize rules in your home so your children grow in a godly way. And you go, man, he is always talking about authority. If it isn't authority, it's sex. I say, well, what do you think federal headship is? <laughs> I think federal headship is authority. I think federal headship is actually pretty intrusive and pretty obnoxious if we actually look at it as to how it works in life. Because in Adam we died, not in Eve. And that means that the second Adam had to be a man. And so there must be something about manhood that is representational and has authority. Oh, yikes. And boy, you women love me now, right? Oh, I'm just so touchy-feely and cuddly. That's what my wife tells me all the time. Listen, God could have set up the world. Let me back up a second. The founding fathers could have set up the United States of America to be a strict democracy. They didn't. They made it what? They made it a representational democracy. And then they made distinctions between the Senate and the House of Representatives in how that representation worked. God could easily have made it so that we were unisex. You know, there are unicycles. Unisex. He didn't make it that way. And we're all focused on trying to defend the gap in the wall of what goes on in bed with whom and what goes on in a wedding ceremony, but we've completely given over federal headship and leadership and authority already in the church completely given it over. We don't believe in federal headship, except, are you ready, when it comes to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we want 
federal headship and representational and authority and all of that because why? Well, because I love Jesus. And the Apostle Paul knew that the Romans in the church there loved Jesus, but he went on and on and on and on about one, 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 and about as in, as in, so, so. Same way, works same way. And what works the same way is we all die in Adam and we're all raised in Jesus Christ. And they're both men. They're both men. Okay? Don't tell me that these verses are important. If you do everything you can to leave federal headship behind in your marriage, in your home. Because federal headship stands and falls together. You can't have Jesus if you deny Adam's federal headship. And there is something angular and elbowish about the federal headship of Adam. Start with the fact that he sinned second. And she sinned first, but in him we die. Okay? As Christians today, we're all about loving Jesus. And then we refuse to have any content to that love. And there is no doctrine that has been more attacked across church history than the doctrine of federal headship of Adam. None. And it's attacked in different ways in different centuries. But from the time of Pelagius on, there's just been a relentless attack. Let me read from uh, Robert Haldane. He says this about this doctrine. He says, No truth revealed in the divine word stirs up against itself more than the doctrine of original sin, the enmity of the human heart. In other words, there's no doctrine that has had so much hatred from, from man as the doctrine of original sin, that we died in Adam. And none, accordingly, has, been, has met in different ages with more determined and persevering opposition. Okay? It hasn't been hated. It's been hated more than any other doctrine, and it's been opposed more than any other doctrine. And then he says this, and yet, a right understanding of it is absolutely necessary to any satisfactory knowledge of the plan of mercy. In other words, you can think and meditate on and learn how to love the doctrine of original sin every single day of your life and every day that you study the doctrine of original sin, you will come to love Jesus more. And if you don't accept the doctrine of original sin, I don't care what you say, you have no love for Jesus. Do you understand this? Because if you don't believe in Adam's federal headship, you don't get Jesus. You don't get them. Are you all with me? Because only Adam's headship, only his death, only original sin explains the tenacity and pervasiveness of sin in your own heart. And only that drives you to the cross. Okay? Now, let me take a moment and, and, and bring you into, my, uh, into, into my, my thinking. 
One of the things for a period of about 15 years that I have been thinking over and over in my mind is the question, can you be a Christian and be pro-abortion and pro-homosexual? Can you be a Christian and be pro-abortion and pro-homosexual? And the fact that I've been thinking about this for 15 years indicates to you that I'm not sure. Now, this is weird, right? You'll all agree it's weird. Because you would think that if there's anything clear to me, Tim Bailey, it's that you can't be pro-abortion and pro-homosexuality and be a Christian. But if you come in my office, you might understand why I have the question. Because I'll have people come in my office from this church who will tell me that they use plan B to try to kill their unborn child. Now, are they Christian? Ah, All of a sudden, you're like, well, that's not being pro-abortion. And I say, well, if that isn't, what is? How about the people here who have either had an abortion or people who have paid other people to have an abortion? Sin is very deceiving, isn't it? And we are very weak, aren't we? Okay? Now, let me ask you a question. When it comes to the federal headship of Adam, how much of it do we reject before we're just rebels and we don't know God? How far do we have to go? How about, let's say that we accept that the husband's the head of the wife, but that we're not so big on this fatherhood thing. Let's say that we don't pray to God as father... But we accept the fact that in Adam we died and we have original sin. Let's say that we pray to God as Father, but we punch our husband every time he says no. Okay? Let's say we say, oh, yes, sweetheart, you're the most wonderful, godly husband any woman has ever had on the face of the earth. But every time our husband says something to the children, we contravene. We undercut him. We move our eyebrow. Do you see? This federal headship thing is a huge issue. And there are all kinds of ways that we can attack it, just like there are all kinds of ways that we can deny the law of God in our lives. We can deny sex homosexually. We can deny it by rebellion. We can deny Adam's federal headship by refusing to submit to our husbands. We can be husbands who deny it by just trying to go along to get along with our wives, which is just as evil. I want you all to realize, if you love Jesus, you're going to give testimony to federal headship at every chance you get because why? Well, because the Bible says that God gave the law so that sins may increase. And so it must be good for sins to increase. And so you should be looking for opportunities for your children's sins to increase. Because why? Well, how does our text end? It says, but. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. And so as we feel more and more and more and more the corruption of original sin in our hearts, what happens? What happens is 
grace superabounds. Grace goes hyper as sin increases. It is sin increasing that causes grace to explode. Now, is that what you see being taught and preached in the church today? Do you see pastors preaching the law of God so that grace can superabound? I mean, come on, laugh. It's like a joke. Remember I said earlier, we have to have faith in sin. It is the schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus. It is part of God's plan. It's a precious part of God's plan for us to meet smack up against original sin, see the law of sin and death in our lives, and desperately cling to Jesus. So every single aspect of the substitutionary atonement, every single aspect of the plan of salvation that you've just had revealed to you from these verses should be precious to us. We shouldn't hide our face. We shouldn't run from it. We shouldn't act as if we don't believe it with the people that we love and work with. It is the gospel. It's the gospel. The law leads us to Jesus. Christian starts out with this horrible burden on his back. And that burden drives him to yon wicked gate, the small little gate. It drives him there. It causes him to not listen to his wife when she's pleading with him to be reasonable about spirituality. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that what? As sin reigned in death, even so grace would... Uh, smile. Grace would flirt. Grace would dilly-daddle. Grace would um, be coy. Grace would what? Grace would what? It's a word that we've cast out of a vocabulary in the United States of America. So that grace would reign. Death reigns, doesn't it? Remember that? Grace reigns all the more. And who whoops whom? Grace. It whoops everything because it says to what? To eternal life. What is eternal life? Now, I know that this seems stupid to say. <laughs> But eternal life is life that doesn't die. Okay? And so this superabounding grace wins. Because this grace of God gives us eternal life. Okay? And it comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I don't think it's accidental that the Apostle Paul ended it with the phrase, our Lord. 
Because why? Well, because we're all trying to talk about love, and we eviscerate love of its content, and we think that love is in opposition to obedience. But right after the Apostle Paul has taken self-righteousness and moralism and legalism away from us with this section, he then gives it back to us, but not as a method of salvation, but as a method of sanctification. It makes us holy. It is not the way that we are justified, but we can't be sanctified without it, and without sanctification, no man will see God. Jesus Christ, what? Our Lord. So now have faith. There is a reason why in this church, many people who have been in other churches have great difficulty. And the reason is churches have not been doing the heavy lifting they need to do. They have not been teaching the law. They have not been preaching original sin. And so people come in here thinking, well, it's enough for me to love Jesus. And then we say, well, what do you mean by love? And immediately there's the speed bump. Well, you know that warm feeling that you get when, you know, when, you know? And I'm like, no, no, I don't know. And you say, well, you know, like, Jesus is everything. And I go, yeah, you're right, but what is love of Jesus? Well, it's, you know... It's, it's realizing that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I say, come on, dude, you have not defined love yet. This is what the, the apostle of love says love is, to obey his commandments. Well, we don't have to obey God. It's all of grace. I say, oh, I'm glad you mentioned grace. Why do we need grace? And you try to get them to explain the federal headship of, of, of Jesus, just Jesus. And about as far as they get is, well, it's all of grace. That's the deepest they get into the federal headship of Jesus. And then you try to get them to explain the federal headship of Adam. And it's hopeless, <laughs> you know. And then you say to them, now one other thing. The law was given that sin may abound. And at that point, it's like if you took a hard drive, a hard drive, not solid, it's a hard drive, and you, you dropped it in, a muddy pond. It's like, and it's over. There's just no more common language. You know what, the, you know what uh, Jonathan Edwards said? Jonathan Edwards said that if you want revival, what should you preach? You know what he said to preach? He said, preach original sin. Isn't that something? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that shows us Adam. We recognize ourselves in him. We thank you that in Adam we all die and that you have taught this to us. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for federal headship that through his life of obedience to death, even death on the cross, that we may have his federal headship and eternal life. Father, give us faith for sin, that we will love and have superabundant grace and that we will be born again by the Spirit of God. 
without hope in ourselves, but hope in the righteousness of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.